Flannery O'Connor said, often the nature of grace can be made plain only by describing its absence. Many times the nature of God's grace can only be made plain and made visible to us by describing or seeing its absence. And that's what Mark is doing in his gospel. He is showing us the absence of God's grace in this fallen, broken world. He's showing us how Adam's sin plummeted this world into ruin and brought on sin and death and disease and destruction. But then Mark shows us Jesus entering those so-called graceless places, those territories where God's grace is absent, seemingly absent, those places where the fall of Adam has reared its ugly head. In Mark's gospel, we see Jesus bringing grace to people who desperately need it. I love this section of Mark. I fell in love again with Jesus this week, just camping out in these verses. What a savior. He gets interrupted when he's preaching, and yet he moves out in compassion. I wouldn't do that, by the way. (laughs) He goes home to rest and gets interrupted, and then he ends up breaking a bunch of cultural norms, and he does it so that he can take away a woman's fever. Then he gets interrupted again and spends his evening dealing with a bunch of social outcasts, with people who have mental issues, the demon-possessed, the poor, people who smell, people who are sick, people who are covered in sores, and he heals them. He spends time with them. Then he wakes up in the morning and he tries to get away to pray, and he gets interrupted again. What's happening in Mark is just an invitation from Jesus for us to interrupt him and see his grace invade our lives. It's a reminder that our needs are not below Jesus, the king of the universe. And what we'll see today is Jesus is just giving and giving and giving himself away for the good of others. He's bringing grace to the places where it is absent. He's letting his calendar and his schedule get interrupted and having to take a back seat to the people in front of him, people who were most likely neglected by society. What a savior. He's spending all his time and energy on ordinary, broken, messy people who are hurting and have no value in the eyes of the world. He, he fills his schedule up with nobodies. And in the process of doing all this, he's teaching his newly called disciples about life and ministry in the kingdom of God. Now, remember what we saw last week. Jesus called the first disciples. He told them that he would make them become fishers of men. And then where does Jesus take them? He takes them to the hospitals, to the psych wards, to the ghettos, across the tracks, in that part of town that nobody wants to go to. That's where they will learn to be fishers of men, in the places and with the people that nobody wants. The disciples are being taught theology as they are surrounded by sick people, poor people, demon-possessed people. And as we watch, we see that Jesus doesn't seek out the upscale. He doesn't seek out the movers and shakers. 
He seeks out those who are wounded, those who are broken, those who are injured, those who are messy, those who are exhausted, and those who are hopeless. He seeks out people who know that they need a Savior. And the first lesson that the disciples will learn is this. Jesus cares. Jesus wants to teach the disciples that he cares about us, that no need is below him, that as Isaiah said about him, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which is our call to worship today, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This is what's happening here in Mark 1, the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah, that the Spirit of God would come upon Jesus and that he would not break bruised reeds, that he would not put out flickering little wicks. That's what we'll see in Mark today. Jesus gently handling bruised reeds. Jesus not quenching faintly burning wicks. Now, I know that we all know that Jesus cares, right? We all know that. We know that Jesus cares. Come on, we're, we know the Bible, right? We know that Jesus cares, but sometimes we don't really believe it. And that's why we have a date with Mark today. It's why we're binge watching Jesus, to be reminded once again and to really feel it in our bones that Jesus really does care for us. Look at Mark chapter 1. Beginning in verse 21, hear the word of the Lord. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The first thing that Mark tells us right away is that right after Jesus called these four disciples, he takes them to Capernaum. This was intentional. There's a reason that Jesus chose this spot, chose this village, because Capernaum means the village of Nahum, like the Old Testament prophet. It means the village of compassion. Jesus took Peter, James, Andrew, and John to the village of compassion because Jesus wants them to catch a glimpse of his heart. The first lesson that Jesus teaches these disciples is what role compassion plays in ministry, what role mercy plays in making disciples. Jesus wants these rough, blue-collar fishermen to see just how compassionate and merciful he is. And he will show them at the synagogue, a place all of these men were very familiar with. Synagogues in Israel were Jewish meeting places where the Mosaic Law would be read and studied. It was where people prayed, where people discipled their children. It was also a place where they had community events. And most significant communities in ancient Israel had a synagogue, and some of the larger cities had more than one. 
These are the places where Jesus often ministered and taught God's word. Jesus, like any grown man who was approved by the synagogue elders, he could read and teach from the Torah in the synagogue. And the fact that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue here in Mark 1 shows us that he had done it before and he was already approved by the synagogue elders to be a teacher. In other words, this was not Jesus' first go-around as a Sunday school teacher. And as he's teaching, he gets interrupted rather rudely by a man possessed by a demon. This was like, think the exorcist movie, if you're familiar with that. Picture this man screaming at Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I need a drink of water now. (laughs) This demon-possessed man that entered the synagogue while Jesus was teaching was unclean, and therefore he should not have been there. If we pull back the curtains, we see this is Satan provoking Jesus. Satan and Jesus, if you remember, just did battle for 40 days in the wilderness. And we see here that Satan has no desire to stop his relentless barrage of attacks on Jesus to try and stop his mission of living and dying for sinners. The devil knows this. He knows that Jesus is so kind and that he's so merciful and so gracious and so compassionate and that he alone is the only one that could rescue sinners and the devil knows this about him and the devil hates it. He hates that Jesus is so kind. He hates that Jesus is so merciful to us. Notice too that it's the demon that initiates the conversation with Jesus. This guy just interrupts Jesus' sermon and starts provoking him. He wants to derail Jesus' plan by telling the crowd who Jesus is so that they will try and speed up his popularity and crown him as king before he goes to the cross. This is why Jesus tells him to shut his face. Be silent. Come out of him. Now, why would Jesus not want people to know that he was the Messiah? Why would he not want people to know that he was the Holy One of God? Here's why. Because Jesus knew people's hearts. Jesus knew that people would immediately want to crown him as king and then beg him to overthrow the Roman government. That's why Jesus repeatedly tells people not to tell others who he is and what he has done for them. And that's why in this chapter we'll see that he'll actually tell that he won't allow the demons to speak anymore. Jesus did not come to overthrow overthrow Rome and be king. He came to lay his life down as a ransom for many. He came to go to the cross, not just to set up a kingdom. And as we saw over the past few weeks, Jesus came to be the second Adam, to live for us and to die in our place. And then someday in the future, he will establish the kingdom of God in all of its fullness when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And when Jesus cast the demon out of this man, that action, that exorcism is the kingdom of God advancing. God is reigning in that moment. God is getting done what he wants done in that moment. But Jesus did not come to set up his kingdom on the earth before he went to the cross. The cross was always his plan, which is why Jesus rebukes Peter later on in Mark's gospel when Peter tries to stop him from going to the cross. Peter actually rebukes Jesus in front of the other disciples. And Jesus calls him Satan in Mark chapter 8. 
because Peter is trying to shut down his mission of going to the cross. So I think this demon in the synagogue is trying to derail Jesus' mission, but Jesus will have none of it. So he tells the demon to shut up and to leave the man. And so the demon throws the man on the ground. He starts convulsing and shaking. And then with a very loud scream, it finally leaves, and the man is whole again. Jesus healed this man and restored him to wholeness and well-being. And everyone that day at church was shocked. I mean, imagine it. They would remember Jesus' sermon that day. Listen, I know most days we don't remember the sermons that we hear. You would remember that sermon. You would remember the big idea of that sermon, which was shut your face, demon, and come out of him. They're surprised because Jesus is teaching with authority. He teaches and he can cast out demons. They obey him. They'd never seen a scribe or a Pharisee do this before. This rabbi can back up what he's saying, back up what he's teaching. And so Mark makes the very first miracle in his gospel, the exorcism of this demon-possessed man, because Mark wants us to know right away that a cosmic war is unfolding between Jesus and the devil. We saw that with Jesus' temptations, but that was in the wilderness. This exorcism happens during church, after the worship has ended, after they've taken up the offering. And Mark records it at the very beginning of his gospel in order to remind us that as 1 John 3.8 says, the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to have compassion on sinners who were bound in different ways and then to set them free. Jesus came to invade Satan's territory. Peter will mention this episode in Mark's, that's happening here in Mark's gospel, in one of his sermons in the book of Acts, in Acts 10, 36 through 38, Peter says this, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter remembered what happened that day at the synagogue and what would unfold in his living room later that evening. The first lesson that the disciples are being taught in Capernaum was burned into Peter's memory because Peter quotes it later on. Jesus picked the village of compassion to give the disciples a glimpse of his heart as he moved out in compassion and healed this demon-possessed man and then healed others later that evening. Most rabbis would not choose to go to the down and out, to the injured, to the sick, to the poor, to lepers, and certainly not to the demon-possessed. Most rabbis would not choose an exorcism as their first lesson to a bunch of green students fresh off their fishing boats. I mean, talk about jumping into the deep end. Hey, I'm going to make you guys, my disciples, fishers of men, let's go cast out a demon. Most people wouldn't do that. But Jesus is not like other rabbis. He will take his disciples to places that they would not choose to go in order to see God's grace in action. Mark would agree that his gospel writing is much like Flannery O'Connor's who said this about her work. She said, I have found, in short, from the reading of my own writing, that my subject in fiction is the action of grace in territory held largely by the devil. That's Mark's gospel. 
he is writing about the action of grace in territory held largely by the devil. And that grace invaded the territory of the devil in the synagogue that day. But don't miss this. Jesus cast the demon out of the man because that man was a person, an image bearer of God. He could have just told the demon to shut up and and left the man this way. But Jesus knew, we don't know, but perhaps this demon-possessed man was a father. Maybe he was a husband, a son, a brother. Jesus knew that he needed his life back. And so he moves out in mercy and compassion and kindness. Things and words that seem weak to us, right? But things that are just things and words that are just full of power. And then Jesus just goes from this magnificent moment, this exorcism in church, to healing Peter's mother-in-law who just has a fever. A fever that she could take some Tylenol for. A fever that would probably go away in a few days. And so you have these moments that are not meaningless and insignificant to Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's a very big problem, like a demon living inside of you, which is a very big problem, or a very small problem, like a fever. It doesn't matter if it's an exorcism or helping someone with a fever. Now, I know if you're like me, when you get a fever, it feels like the biggest thing in the world, doesn't it? I mean, especially as men, we just lay there and we're, just, we're babies. We're just like, you know, help, help. You... The wives are so good and kind to put up with how weak we are. I know compared to, to having a demon living inside of you or having a fever, I'll take the fever. Even though when I do have one, I feel like a big baby. But whatever it is, it doesn't matter if it's an exorcism or just someone with a fever. Jesus cares. There are people here today, I'm sure, who don't believe this. People who are believing the lies of the devil. People who know the Bible. I mean, you know the Sunday school answer. You know that Jesus loves you and he cares about you. You tip your hat to that. Yes, of course I know that. But you don't really believe it. You're not believing it in this moment right now. Well, listen to your pastor. I may be an idiot, and I will freely admit that. I can be an idiot. But I know at least one thing about Jesus. That he cares. Trust me, I don't need a demon-possessed man to come in here today and interrupt my sermon and say, I know who you are, Benji Magnus. You're an idiot. I already know I am. (laughs) I was just thinking of Laverne and Shirley this morning as I was praying and getting ready for church, and I thought of, you know, Shlemiel, Shlemazel, Hassan, Pfeffer, Incorporated. Those are Yiddish words. It just means like idiot. And I thought, man, that's me. I'm a shlemiel, I'm a shmazel. I'm just an idiot. I work for Haas and Pfeffer Incorporated, whatever that place is. I don't need a demon to come in here and tell me that I'm an idiot because I know I'm an idiot. But I know one thing about Jesus, even though I am an idiot. I know that he cares. I know that he cares about you. And I know that you need to tell yourself today, to tell your heart, Jesus cares about me. I know who you are. I won't say it in a voice like, I know who you are. But I know who you are. And Jesus cares about you. You are loved, brothers and sisters. Jesus cares about all the details 
of your life. Everything about you concerns him. I was just hit with that truth this week. I thought, this thing that I'm worried about, that I'm stressing over, that it's breaking my heart. I just kept telling myself, Jesus cares about this. He's the king of the universe, and he cares about this little thing that will probably get resolved, and then I'll forget about it. And he cares. Listen, every detail about your life matters to him. A thing that you're stressing about right now that's keeping you up at night, that's taking away your appetite and you cannot eat, that thing that's making you toss and turn in bed, that thing matters to Jesus. Let that sink in. But another stunning element to Jesus' ministry is that the healing of this demon-possessed man, as well as the healings that will occur in the next episode, they all occur on the Sabbath In order to understand what is happening, we have to have a a proper understanding of the Sabbath in Jesus' day. It was from sundown Friday evening to sundown Saturday evening. The Sabbath had become a symbol for the eschatological rest or the shalom or peace or wholeness of God that would come one day when God ushered in the kingdom of God in its final fullness. So the Sabbath was a symbol of the dominion of God, of the kingdom of God. It It was... Basically, you say, God reigns so we can rest. God's in control so we can trust and just kick back and put our feet up. So when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, he is deliberately ushering in the already aspect of the kingdom of God. We talked about it last week, the already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. When he heals on the Sabbath, he's ushering in the already aspect of the kingdom of God. And if God was going to heal humanity finally and fully in the age to come and the Sabbath was a symbol of that, then what better day to heal someone than on the Sabbath? And Jesus would say, exactly, that's why I'm doing it. This, of course, we know will become something that the religious leaders of the day hate about Jesus because he does not conform to their man-made rules. Jesus is obedient to Scripture, not the traditions of men. In the Mishnah, which is this ancient Jewish commentary, it says that the scribes and the Pharisees should make a fence around the law, a fence around God's law, meaning they so wanted to protect God's law from being violated that they made up all these man-made rules to keep people from actually breaking God's commandments. The Mishnah says that the tradition is a fence around the law. So, for instance, in order to keep the Sabbath holy and not do any work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees came up with rules governing how far you could actually walk on the Sabbath and have it not be considered working on the Sabbath. So there were hundreds of these man-made rules that became a fence around the law. They were very detailed and petty, and the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders in Jesus, they elevated these man-made laws to the status of, of God's law. The religious leaders came up with these because they did not want people breaking God's laws and they would enforce their own laws, their own rules, like how far you could walk on the Sabbath. And they're saying, this is God's law. Of course, Jesus will not break God's law and sin. He's sinless, he's perfect. But we will see him challenge all of these man-made rules that were brought up to the same level as God's law. And what Jesus does on the Sabbath 
will break many of these traditions. And that's why Jesus will have a target on his back from the religious elite down south in Jerusalem. I'll explain more about that when we get going. But basically, they saw Jesus as a redneck rabbi in the backwoods of Galilee. And so what happens after this church exorcism? Mark tells us that Jesus' fame begins spreading. His popularity is growing. And so what does he do? Does he ink a book deal? Does he go on Good Morning America? Does he stay up late so that he could be on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon? Does he start speaking at the Gospel Coalition Conference? No. Jesus doesn't want the fame. Zach Aswine says that Jesus is fame shy. He's not out to make a name for himself. He could have started a blog, started a podcast, got a book deal. He could have sat around and signed autographs and reveled in the praise and adoration of the crowd. I mean, this was a big deal. He cast a demon out of a man and everyone saw it. Jesus totally could have taken advantage of this to spread his popularity. He could have tweeted about it. But what does he do? He tells the demon to shut his face and then he immediately hightailed it out of the synagogue and goes to the home of an unknown fisherman, Peter. He goes to the small home of a poor fisherman, and helps, he actually touches on the Sabbath a woman who has a thermometer in her mouth. Look at verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him... (coughs) all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So Jesus leaves the synagogue where a pretty remarkable thing just happened. I mean, it's not every day that there's an exorcism at church. And then where does he go? He goes to Peter's house. Now note this, Peter is always present with Jesus. Nothing happens in Mark's gospel in which Peter is not present. Peter is an eyewitness to Jesus. And as we know from church history, Peter discipled Mark. So Mark's gospel is an eyewitness testimony to the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus goes to the home of Peter with these four disciples to get away from the crowds. And he performs another miracle out of the spotlight. No cameras around, no news reporters. There's just one family and a few friends and a need. And Jesus intervenes without an iPhone, without his Instagram account open, ready to capture it, with no desire to immediately post something. I gotta post something, something happened in my life. I brushed my teeth. That's what we do. Jesus doesn't do that, he sees a person with a need, with a thermometer in her mouth and lying lifeless on the couch. Now notice what verse 30 says, and immediately they told him about her. They came in from the synagogue. Peter's wife probably ran up to Peter and said, mom's got a bad fever. She's not going to be able to cook her famous lasagna for that new rabbi that you started following. And so what does Peter do? Hey, Jesus, help. He calls on Jesus immediately, Mark tells us. Remember, Peter just saw Jesus pull off an exorcism at church. 
And that's why he runs to Jesus, because if Jesus can cast out a demon, he can handle a run-of-the-mill fever. Peter knew that it would not bother Jesus to be interrupted by this seemingly insignificant moment. Jesus sees, and then he touches her. Jesus actually does something that no man, let alone a rabbi, should have done. He touched a woman. Now that should shock us. It would have shocked anyone in Jesus' day because it was against Jewish custom to touch a woman that you were not related to, as well as against custom to touch a sick woman. And Jesus does both on the Sabbath. And then that woman with the thermometer in her mouth gets up and cooks her famous lasagna for Jesus and the disciples. But that constitutes work on the Sabbath, according to the religious leaders. And so these moments of compassion and care for his creation end up becoming things that the religious leaders in Jerusalem will use against Jesus in order to accuse and arrest him. This story is reminding us that Jesus cares about all the little details of our lives. He will not turn a deaf ear. He will not ignore you. He comes to you because he cares. This was a private moment with a few friends where Jesus shows compassion on Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus invades a rather mundane moment. A woman has a fever and he heals her. Everybody gets a fever occasionally, right? Fever is just proof that your body's immune system is working and is fighting off an infection. And so Jesus goes and heals this woman in an act of mercy, an act of care, and an act of compassion. This healing shows us that there is really nothing too small for Jesus. There's no care of ours that is too small for the king of the universe. There's nothing in our lives, nothing that is too small or insignificant for Jesus. Think about that. I don't know your opinion on President Trump, okay? I probably have a guess. I don't know what it is. But if you went to him right now and said, I'm struggling about this little thing in my family, he'd probably be like, what? Who cares? And yet you can go, and maybe he wouldn't do that. I don't want to throw him under the bus. Maybe he would care. My point is that here's a person in power, the king of the universe, that you can take this little thing that bothers you to him And he's not indifferent. He listens and he cares. And this is where we all live, right? Fevers, sick children in the middle of the night, late nights, small troubles in our lives that just feel so weighty. And yet Jesus comes to us. He does not stand back. He cares. He moves out in compassion. He really cares about you right now. This episode in Peter and Andrew's house is supposed to reinforce in your mind the love and the care that Jesus has for you individually. Now, perhaps some Bible verse comes to mind. When you see Jesus here in Capernaum, the village of compassion, for me it was two psalms that popped into my head this week as I worked on this sermon. Number one was Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. And then right after that, Psalm 56, verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Are we really going to entertain the thought that Jesus doesn't care? He keeps track of every tossing, every late night tossing in your bed. He keeps track of every tear that you have cried in a bottle. Who does that? I want to say weirdos, but Jesus isn't weird. 
He keeps track of your tears. They're all in a book. Everything that happens with you that concerns you, he has written them down, yours, in a book. He's got a journal full of them. Listen, I've been troubled many times in my life, almost daily, because I have issues. And I have forgotten about 99% of all the things that I've ever been worried about or that have ever concerned me. A few big ones I can remember. But for the most part, I've forgotten about all those things. And yet Jesus could come in here right now and interrupt my sermon and read you a journal full of them. Why? Because he cares. He's got a book that's full of all of my cares and all of your cares because he cares. This seems like a very boring, mundane event happening in Peter's living room, but it wasn't. Boring and mundane situations and moments in our home are more than just boring, mundane situations and moments in our homes. They become opportunities for us to be confronted with the healing power of Jesus. They become moments where our little kingdoms of self collide with the kingdom of God. They become moments where the kingdom of God, where the grace of Jesus graciously interferes and intrudes and invades in order to help reorient our wayward hearts. Imagine the crowds gathering at the door of Peter's house, just pushing and pushing and shoving to get in. Imagine Jesus sitting there and just caring for people. Imagine waiting in line, bringing your sick daughter to him, and he scoops her up from your arms and holds her, prays for her, and heals her. And then she just runs out the door because that's what kids do. Imagine bringing your child who is full of demons to Jesus. And he starts squirming and writhing at the mouth because they get closer to Jesus. And he says, you're not going to speak. And he casts them out. And you get your boy back, your little boy back whole. You've got to picture this in your mind, this living room, this whole village, the village of compassion gathered around Peter and Andrew's house to hear from the most compassionate, caring person in the universe. And they get his attention. They heard about the exorcism at church that morning. Perhaps word got out about Peter's mother-in-law. It's like, I smell lasagna cooking. What happened to Linda? Did Jesus heal her? She's making lasagna. They knew one thing. Jesus cares. They knew that he was not like other rabbis and scribes and teachers of the law. They gathered that he cared for them. So they wait until sundown when the Sabbath officially ended, and they all try to crowd into Peter's house. Now notice, they wait until sundown. They don't want to work on the Sabbath or break some man-made law that the Pharisees came up with. But what they don't know about Jesus was that even if they showed up at 2.30 in the afternoon and interrupted his nap, he would not have cared. He still would have healed them on the Sabbath. Listen, Jesus doesn't care if you interrupt him precisely because he cares. Just... Christian, go ahead and barge into your high priest, as the preacher of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4. Go boldly and confidently and just pour your heart out to him. Mark wants you to see Jesus and be convinced that he will welcome all the people that are clamoring outside at the door. See, we seem to lose sight of the redemptive power and purpose of Jesus in those moments. 
He desires to enter into our mess, to enter into our brokenness, to enter into our family drama and begin transforming us in our homes. And this episode in Peter's house shows us that. It's a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. He cares about all the pain, all the sorrow, all the drama that takes place in our homes and in our church. Parenting issues, marriage problems, finances, in-laws, siblings. Jesus cares about all of it. He doesn't sit back and ignore us, nor is he indifferent. He's not sitting around thinking, can't they just get their act together? I mean, come on. Why don't they believe that I care? He didn't sit around like that. He cares. And he even cares when somebody comes down with an ordinary fever. So two things are always taking place as Jesus heals people and casts out demons in the Gospels. He is at the same time confronting and overthrowing the kingdom of darkness as well as being the good shepherd. It isn't that Jesus just wants to defeat the devil and throw it in his face. And it isn't that Jesus just wants to heal and comfort people. He wants to do both and he does both at the same time. He confronts evil, and he comforts people. That's what he does when he intervenes in our lives. He confronts evil, and he comforts people at the same time. He overthrows the kingdom of darkness as the good shepherd. As someone who is meek, gentle, caring, kind, compassionate. So this incident with Peter and his mother-in-law gives us a glimpse into the shepherding heart of Jesus The joys and sorrows of our homes are not a hindrance to him. In fact, they are a joy to him. He loves to enter into both the joys and the sorrows of our family and do his thing. Does Jesus always heal as we wish? No. Sometimes people don't recover. Sometimes things don't go as we want. But we know that when we pray, when we ask for help, when we pray for healing, we are not petitioning an angry judge Martin Luther thought with his veins popping out of his forehead and neck. No, we are approaching a caring father. We are asking the good shepherd to intervene and help. And as the Psalms say, he is good and he always does good. He knows what is best for his children. Sometimes we experience healing like Peter's mother-in-law. And sometimes we just get grace to endure. Commenting on this episode here in Mark, Charles Spurgeon said, The tender heart of Jesus waits to hear our griefs. Let us pour them into his patient ear. The tender heart of Jesus waits to hear our griefs. Let us pour them into his patient ear. That's what the people in these episodes are doing. They show up at Peter and Andrew's house, they wait in line, and they pour their griefs into Jesus' patient ear. Let me ask you this morning, what griefs do you need to pour into Jesus' ear? What is weighing down upon your heart right now? The tender heart of Jesus is waiting. So go ahead and pour all of your troubles, no matter how big or how small, into the patient ear of Jesus. Now we all know someone in our life who just goes on and on and on. They're telling us something and we're like, God, wrap this story up, please. You know, we're just like, please. Right? We all know someone like that. And we're just thinking, I can't listen anymore. No more. Jesus never does that with us. He just listens, 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 and listens. Let me ask you this morning, 
do you really believe that he cares? He does. If you're struggling to believe that, just tell him. Jesus can handle it. Just tell him. I'm doubting this. Jesus can handle it, okay? I mean, he already knows, right? You're not going to surprise him with your doubts and your struggles. As we close, let me ask you, where has the brokenness of this world landed on you recently? Where has broken relationships, whatever it is in your life, where has the brokenness of this world landed on you? Where have you felt the effects of Adam's sin, the effects of the fall? Where are you struggling? Is there pain, sorrow, sadness? It might be physical. It may be a diagnosis that you or someone you love received. It might be depression and mental illness. It might be a wayward child. Where are you wounded? Where does it hurt? Where are you injured? Where has the brokenness of this world landed on you recently? How is your heart breaking this morning? That's exactly where Jesus wants to meet you. Right in the middle of the living room of your doubt. Right in the middle of the sanctuary of your pain. And he wants to meet you here today as we celebrate communion. Mark wants us to feel it in our bones that Jesus cares. And the Lord's Supper is all the proof that you need. What do these two elements before us tell us? What do the bread and the cup remind us of? They remind, these two elements remind us of two words. Jesus cares. The bread and the cup are screaming out to us today, interrupting our time here this morning, screaming at us and saying, I know who you are. You are a person that Jesus, the good shepherd, cares for. Will you receive that today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your compassion and your care, your love and your kindness and your mercy and your grace. We don't deserve any of it. We're crybabies and whiners and complainers and we bicker and fight and we have ill thoughts towards other people and we make up fake conversations in our head that might happen and what we would say to somebody to really get them and we do all this stuff, God, because we're messed up. We're, we're broken and injured and messy. We're feeling the effects of the fall this morning and we just come and say, meet us here. Help us in our homes and in this church and in this nation and world, God. We need the good shepherd, to care for us. Forgive us, Father, for loving many other things in this world and trying to trust in them and trying to say, if that happens, then I'll be happy if I get that at this. Forgive us for breaking your law. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the one who was anointed with the Spirit. Thank you that he does not rough up a bruised reed. He doesn't blow on the faintly flickering candles, but he comes and protects and heals. And we need it this morning. And so I pray that your grace would empower us as we eat and drink this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.